Well, thank you, Holly. <clears throat> Nothing but the blood. That was excellent. Take your Bibles, go to Esther chapter 5. Esther chapter 5, as we continue on in our narrative of the story of Esther, we pick it up in chapter 5 this morning, looking at cover the, covering the entire chapter 5. You, as I have, has probably started a story with the phrase, the other day. You ever do that? The other day I was, or whatever, or the other day this, that. And it's a very unique phrase because it honestly can mean anything between two days ago and about two years ago, right? It's really this kind of this indefinite amount of time. The other day I, well, actually when I think about it, it was 1998. And it can kind of mean a bunch of different things, right? On the other hand, designations like yesterday, if I say, you know, yesterday this happened to me, you know exactly when it happened, right? Or if I say tomorrow I'm going to, or if I say later today, well, those have specific beginnings and specific endings. You realize that every day since the second day of creation has had a yesterday and a tomorrow. And that will continue. It will continue for a very long time. As limited creatures, we live between yesterday and tomorrow, don't we? Every day of our lives. Live between what already has been and what is not yet. Does that make sense? We're living between what has made us who we are and maybe what we, what we will become. We can't change the yesterday and we can't predict the tomorrow. For, for each day, it has its own unique set of circumstances, doesn't it? We've seen here in the story of Esther, especially recently in the story, really since chapter 3 onward, we've seen the story move very quickly. There are things happening every day, seemingly almost every hour in this story, that propels the narrative forward. Ever since Haman has decreed the annihilation of the Jews, things have moved very quickly. The beginning of chapter 5, we sit at a time in the story when Haman has plotted the annihilation of the Jews. He has his decree, and remember the decrees of the Medes and Persians cannot be changed. They cannot be revoked. Meanwhile, the end of Esther chapter 4, we saw last week that Esther has decided to risk her life and go before the king to save the Jews. So you have events of, of yesterday, as it were, being that Haman is plotting to destroy the Jews. Meanwhile, Esther is plotting to, to save the Jews. Here's the providence of God in that little scenario right there. And I wish I, wish I had a sound effect for every time that we come across the providence of God. Maybe Dean or Joel or Bethany or somebody you can work on that on the, on the organ for me. Like a, like a bum, 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 something like that. Because we see it come up so often. And we see it here again because think through this. Esther is going before the king knowing what Haman is planning to do. But here's God's goodness. Haman is doing all that he's doing, having no idea about Esther and what she's doing. You see that? God is good in that way. It's, that's, that's the hand of God at work in human events. Because Haman is walking blind, completely blind. No idea as we get through the, the events of chapter 5 and into chapter 6. No idea what's going on, but Esther, God has given her insight because she knows what she is up against. Some things, you know, are best, best kept secret, aren't they? It, it looks like God is behind but he's always a, a step ahead. 
And here we'll see, especially in chapter 5, that, that God has placed exactly the right person in Esther in the place that, that he wants her to be to accomplish his will. And I think it's in chapter 5 that Esther the star, remember that's what her, uh, her Persian name means. It means star. I think it's where we really see the star start to shine. In Esther 5, we're going to see four qualities in Esther today. In the first eight verses, we're going to see her boldness, her wisdom, her shrewdness, and her patience. So to see her boldness, I actually want to jump back into chapter 4 a little bit. Chapter 4, verse 16. Remember, Mordecai had given this plea to Esther to say, Esther, you've got to do something. This might be the very reason that you have been made queen for this very moment, for such a time as this. And Esther ponders that in verse 16. She tells Mordecai, I will go to the king. I will do it. I'm going to go. She has become the courageous queen and not just the comfortable coward. She's decided there at the end of verse 16, she makes that, says that statement, if I perish, I perish. She's decided that, well, you know what? I'm going to do the best I know to do, and I'm going to leave the results in God's hands. Her attitude is that she will do what she can, or she will die trying. God, it's up to you at this point. My life is in your hands. And I think it's interesting to point out here that her trust in the sovereignty of God is what propels her forward with boldness. She trusts that it's in the hands of God. Therefore, she says, I'm walking forward. Trusting in the sovereignty of God propels us forward in boldness. It did for Esther, and it should for us. In five chapter, or chapter 5, verse 1, we see that Esther here not only says that she's going before the king, but she actually does it. Verse 1, now it happened on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace. It was boldness in action, not just in word. And she goes in to the king on the third day. Now that should, that should bring us a question, right? What, what third day? Third day of what? What third day? What's that mean? Remember she had told, the, uh, told Mordecai to tell the Jews to fast for me for how many days? three days, three days of prayer and fasting. And it says here that on that third day, the third day of the prayer and fasting, she goes to the king. She goes, I think it's interesting, they're still praying and fasting. And what is she doing? She says, I'm going. I'm going to go and I'm going to take action while they're still praying for me. And so here they are. She, here she is backed by prayer. She goes before the king. You know, fasting, prayer, boldness, it all indicates belief in the sovereignty of God. Well, think about it for a second. Why do, you, why do you pray? Why do you pray? You pray because you believe God is sovereign and, and he has control in our situations. Every act of prayer is an act of submission to the sovereignty of God. So if you don't believe in the sovereignty of God, don't bother praying. It's going to do you no good. Because when we pray, we're saying, God, I'm giving this to you because you have control. If you don't believe God has control, then why would you ask him to do things? Every prayer is an act of submission to the sovereignty of God. And Esther here portrays a great pattern for us. Pray and move forward. Pray and go forward. 
In other words, because God can, therefore I will. God's sovereignty motivates our movement. It motivates, it propels us forward. You know, I think some people don't understand that, though. I think some people look at the sovereignty of God as an excuse for poor planning, for poor preparation, and just kind of an overall attitude of inaction. Well, if God does, then I don't have to. No, because God can, therefore I will. Because God is at work. Three statements here to help us clarify this. If God's sovereignty renders you inactive, number one. If God's sovereignty renders you inactive, number one, you probably have a poor understanding of sovereignty. About 30 years after the book of Esther, the events of the book of Esther, Nehemiah goes back from Persia to Jerusalem and he rebuilds the walls of the city. Now, this is important. Even though Nehemiah in your Bible comes before Esther, the events of Nehemiah are actually after Esther, about 30 years after Esther. And this is why the saving of the Jews in Esther has to happen. Because if Esther does not save her, if God does not save the people through Esther, then Nehemiah and Ezra never get back to Jerusalem and do what they do. And so here's Nehemiah 30 years later, just an incredible story as you read through the book of Nehemiah, incredible story about the sovereignty of God. Artaxerxes, that's Ahasuerus' son, is the one who lets Nehemiah, remember Nehemiah is is his cupbearer, he's the one that lets him go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall. Not only lets him go back, but gives him stuff to do it, gives him protection to do it. And Nehemiah returns to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, and they face opposition. We saw some of this in our scripture reading. I want to show you five places. Jump there real quick. Book of Nehemiah, starting in chapter 2. I want to show you several verses here. Nehemiah believed in the sovereignty of God, but it did not render him inactive. Nehemiah 2, verse 20. Nehemiah 2, verse 20. Nehemiah says, so I answered them and said to them, the God of heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build. God will prosper us. Therefore, we just sit around and wait for him to do it. No, he says, God will prosper us. Therefore, we rise up and build. Look at Nehemiah chapter four, verses four through six. Nehemiah prays this prayer in verses four and five. Hear, O God, for we are despised. Our enemies are up against us. He prays, and then verse six, what does it say? So we built the wall. We pray, and we move forward. Verse nine, same idea. He says, nevertheless, we made our prayer to our God. And because of them, we set a watch against them day and night. We prayed and we moved forward. Verse 14, and I looked and arose and said to the nobles, to the leaders and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, great and awesome, and fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. Verse 20, Nehemiah says, wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. Verse 21, so we labored in the work. Because God is in control, we have hope. Because God is in control, we work. 
Because God is saving people, we spread the gospel. If God is not in control, that's the point when we stop working because we have no hope of being effective. You see that? Because God is working, that's why we work. If God were to ever stop working, guess what? We might as well stop too because there's no hope of being effective anymore. So if God's sovereignty renders you inactive, you, number one, probably have a poor understanding of sovereignty. Number two, if God's sovereignty renders you inactive, you may be disobedient to clear commands of Scripture. How many times have you heard something like this? Well, if God is sovereign over salvation, then then he's going to save people regardless of what I do. Well, then what do you do about the command to go and preach the gospel? What do you do about that? Well, God's going to do that anyways. Well, he's given you a command to be a part of it. Well, yeah, God's going to provide whether or not I give anything, right? God's going to provide. I fully believe God's going to provide whether or not I do anything. No, God provides through what you do. God provides through your giving. God's sovereignty should never cause us to disobey the clear commands of Scripture. If you choose not to do what God has called you to do, it's not God who loses. It's you. You lose out on the blessing of serving him. You lose out on the blessing of of the joy that comes with serving Christ. And here we see this this glorious connection between the divine sovereignty of God and, and the human responsibility of each one of us. These two things that seem to be opposed, seem that we can't reconcile them. You know, God does this, and, 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 and what's our role in that? Charles Spurgeon likened design, divine sovereignty and human responsibility to parallel railroad tracks. They're always next to each other, right? And if you stand at a railroad track and you look down far enough, you can see the two tracks here, but if you look into the difference, it looks like they come together as one. And he says they are two railroad tracks, and somehow God makes them intersect in his way. We ride the rail. We ride the rail of human responsibility. Why? Because it's the only one we can ride. We're on that track. And sometimes in our lives, you know that it's hard to see the other track, isn't it? It's hard to realize God is at work there. I don't see him at work. But by faith, we believe the other track is still there. We know it's there. We believe in God's sovereignty. We realize that though God may be invisible, he is never inactive. That track is always there. God is always at work. And that's why we keep riding our rail. We keep working. We keep doing what God has called us to do. We see that in Esther. We also see that her boldness is guarded and advanced by wisdom. Esther's wise. She does not go before the king in a foolhardy attempt at the impossible. Rather, it is a wise, courageous attempt at what is possible through God. There's a big difference. Look at the wisdom of Esther, chapter 5, verse 1. Now, it happened on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace, across from the king's house, while the king sat on his royal throne in the royal house, facing the entrance of the house. You say, well, I don't, I don't see a whole lot of wisdom in that verse. Well, it's a small phrase. It says she went, it happened on the third day, Esther put on her royal robes. So it tells us in verse one, not only that she went before the king, but it tells us how she went before the king. 
Once she had made up her mind to go before the king, chapter 4, verse 16, she began getting things ready. She's used two days to dry clean her best royal garment. She used two days to get all gussied up as she possibly could. Why would she go to all that trouble? Isn't God in control no matter how I look? Isn't God in control no matter what I do? This is wisdom by Esther. See, she's not going to just show up before the king and say, oh, well, God, you better work because I did nothing. That's not what she says at all. God's sovereignty does not mean that we don't look our best, that we don't do our best. High schoolers, God's sovereignty still means that you study for tests. You don't just pray for a miracle when it starts. You ever been there, adults? Yeah? Well, I got to turn this one over to God because I had six weeks and I did nothing. Well, that's not really trusting in God as much as it is stupidity. See, here's Esther. She knows that God has made her beautiful, has given her favor with the king, and so she makes that beauty as beautiful as it possibly can be. God has given her a gift, and so she says, I'm going to use that gift to accomplish what God wants me to. Here, she had access to the most beautiful dresses, as you could probably imagine. She, she had access to the best cosmetics, and guess what? She used them. There's a lesson there for us. When we have opportunity to do the Lord's work, God expects us to use the talents, the resources, the intellect, the capacity that he has given us to do the work that he's given us to do. We do our best because God deserves our best. We do our best because God always does his best. If you've got a nice dress and you're going before the king, what do you do? You wear the nice dress. That's what would be expected. If you've got a nice church campus, keep it nice. It's not the nice campus that will save someone, but it's one less barrier to keeping someone away. Why wouldn't you? You know, I don't, I don't go to a restaurant because it's clean. I go to a restaurant because the food's good. But no matter how good the food is, I'm not going there if it's filthy. See what I mean? So it behooves each one of us when God has given us these wonderful things, when God's given us wonderful people, when God's given us wonderful talents and abilities and a beautiful campus and all these different things that he's given to us, we use them for his glory. And we use them to the best that we possibly can because the work of God is at stake. The sovereignty of God should inspire us to use what he has given us for his glory. So Esther does it. She goes before the king. Pick it up in verse 2. So it was when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, how will the king respond? There's two options here. It's either off with her head or come here, my darling. Kind of, kind of two ends of the spectrum, isn't it? Right, off with her head, kill her, or... Come here, I've been waiting for you to come. When the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she found favor in his sight. And the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther went near and touched the top of the scepter. We see this theme from chapter 2. Remember, I think it was three times in chapter 2 that we saw that Esther found favor with Haggai, 
found favor with the king, found favor with all that saw her. And here we see that, that theme being repeated, that the king, that, that Queen Esther found favor in the eyes of the king. He raises the golden scepter, she touches it, disaster averted. Now the king is smart though. Verse number three, he says, the king said to her, what do you wish, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you up to half the kingdom. He knows she didn't come just to check on how he was doing. You don't risk your life just to say, hey, just thought maybe you needed a cup of hot chocolate or something. No, she was there for a reason. And he said, Esther, why have you come? I'll give you what you ask for up to half of the kingdom. Obviously a hyperbole there because it only takes two requests to lose your whole kingdom if that's the case. So it's obviously this idea that, you know, hey, it's hyperbole for go ahead and ask, right? Just, just see what I'll do for you. Esther's response, verse 4. Her response shows us more of her character and more of her trust in God. Verse 4. So Esther answered, if it pleases the king. We see here in, in the statement that she's about to make, we see the shrewdness of Esther. Now, I know the word shrewd has, has a negative connotation, but it doesn't have to. The word shrewd means having or showing astute or sharp judgment in practical matters. And I think Esther's already proven that some, and she does again here. She has that in spades. Astute or sharp judgment in practical matters. So the king asked her in verse 3, you can have anything you want. And verse 4, she immediately responds with a request. That didn't catch her off guard. She was ready. She was ready for him to ask, what do you want, Esther? She had planned ahead for the question. And backed by prayer, Esther says, if it pleases the king... Let the king and Haman come today to the banquet that I have prepared for him. Wait, what? That is about the most unexpected thing you, could, you, you would think right there. Here's her one chance, right? She's got before the king. She's trying to save her people. She's got the two most powerful men in the world in front of her. She survived this. And here she comes and she can ask up to half of the kingdom. And she says... Would you come to a, a, a banquet? One chance before the king, and, I, and she blows it. She got the two most important men, and she says, hey, would you come you know, later today and, and sip some wine and eat some hors d'oeuvres with me? She has to save her people. Why a banquet? Why would she do that? Here is the shrewd discernment of Esther. See, during three days of fasting and prayer, Esther wasn't just, you know, wringing her hands, pacing the floor and hoping for the best. I really have no idea what I'm going to say. I really have no idea what I'm going to do, but uh, here goes nothing. No, she's setting out her best dress. She's preparing a menu. She's selecting the best wine. She's arranging the decor. She has a plan. And when she gets before the king, she executes that plan. See, the sovereignty of God does not mean that we don't plan and prepare accordingly. We plan our work and we work our plan, right? 
Now, now granted, sometimes in life, you know this is true, sometimes we're forced to fly by the seat of our pants, aren't we? Can't expect it. Just, it just happens. But honestly, if that is your normal operation, <coughs> if that's your normal operation, it's probably less about trusting God and more about not planning ahead. Honestly. See, some people think that it's very spiritual to be led at the last minute as if the Holy Spirit only comes through in crunch time. He's not going to do it anything any earlier than the very moment that I have to do something. That sounds pious, but it's just not true. Well, well, doesn't the Bible say don't worry about what you need to say? Because in that moment, God will give you, the Holy Spirit will give you what you need to say. If that's what that means, then I'm canceling my office hours. You'll find me on the golf course looking for my ball. Because I'll just wait, you know, till Sunday morning and God will give me what I need to say. See, proper planning is not a resistance to God's sovereign work. Rather, it is motivated by the fact that God is working. Oh, well, I don't plan ahead. I trust God. No, I plan ahead because I trust God. That's what we should be doing. God has created us to be thoughtful, intelligent beings. We plan ahead, we, we, we have a plan, we work a plan because God is in control. Now, that said, we also realize that God is ultimately in control and sometimes our plans change it, don't they? God, sometimes God changes our plans. The best laid plans are sometimes laid waste because he is ultimately in control and not us. We plan, we should, but we do so submitting our plans to the Lord. Proverbs 16, 9. A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. James 4, 13 to 15. He says, be careful when you say tomorrow, we're going to go here and do that and sell this and buy that. Because you do not know what's going to happen tomorrow. Instead, you should say, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. And that's true. We plan, we submit all those plans to God. But I want to show you something here. In the story of Esther, we see that her prior plans are the ones that God uses. So there we see divine sovereignty and human responsibility working together again. Because God deems fit to use the plan that Esther has put together. And I think in Christian circles today, we need a little bit more of the attitude of Esther. A little bit more of the thoughtful preparation of Esther, careful planning, careful preparation, instead of just foolishly charging hell with a squirt gun. We're not going to get too far. Wise and shrewd tactics that effectively utilize the gifts God has given us to do things with purpose, to do things with intentionality, to not just know what we are supposed to do, but why we're supposed to do them and have a reason for what we do, to give a defense for what we do. Esther planned and prepared a banquet. Why a banquet? That's the way, all the things she could ask. Why did she choose to invite him to a banquet? She's a wise and a shrewd woman because she knows that the way to a man's heart is through his stomach. That's true. Ladies, if you have something to, to, big to discuss with your husband, feed the man. It will go a lot better. Esther is proving that right here. You know, God's sovereignty does not mean that you hang your practical wisdom on the coat rack when you enter the room. As if, no, I don't have to do anything. I don't have to think through it. God's in control. He is in control. He's also given you the ability to think. 
That's part of his control. Something else she does here that's unique too. Not only does she invite the king to a banquet, she invites who? Haman. You imagine how hard that had to be? To invite the sworn enemy, the one who is trying to kill you and kill your people to a banquet. Hey, come wine and dine with, with me. Why would she do that? Well, I think we see her shrewd wisdom again. We may say it something like this. Keep your friends close and your enemies closer. She was no, she was no trophy queen figurehead wife with no sense. God had her there for a reason. Look at verse 5. The king says, bring Haman quickly that he may do as Esther has said. So the king and Haman went to the banquet that Esther had prepared. I think that shows us the favor that Esther had. Two busy men that drop everything and attend the queen's banquet. And they just drop it all. Hey, go get Haman. We're going to this banquet. Shows you the favor that Esther had garnered. Verse 6, they're sitting at the banquet now. And the king says to Esther again, what is your petition? It shall be granted you. What is your request? Up to half the kingdom it shall be done. Golden opportunity number two. You don't often get a second chance in life. You don't often get a golden opportunity twice, but she does. And here's, here's her opportunity, right? This is when she's going to do it. She's really going to lay it on heavy now. She says to the king, she says, my request is that you come to another banquet. What in the world is going on here? Is she chickening out? Why is she waiting? Why she wait until tomorrow? Her first request to come to a banquet is unexpected. I think the second one is even more unexpected. What is she waiting for? Why would she do this? I want to show you the patience of Esther. The patience of Esther, verse 7 and 8. My petition and request is this. If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request... Then let the king and Haman come to the banquet, which I will prepare for them. And tomorrow I will do as the king has said. You know, postponing to a second banquet had to be a huge act of faith. How much could go wrong in the meantime? Maybe Haman and the king get busy overnight, right? And can't come. Plans have to change. Maybe Haman figures out what she's up to. Maybe he figures some things out and realizes, uh-oh, something's up here. It, it seems like nothing good could happen by postponing till tomorrow. But there's one thing we don't account for sometimes, and that is the perfect timing of God. The perfect timing of God. We have to learn to trust that the timing of God's plan is always perfect. And here's why. God can be as patient as he needs to be because he is ultimately in control. Don't miss that. God can be as patient as he needs to be in your life because he is ultimately in control. God's sovereignty never puts him in a hurry. He doesn't have to rush through things. He controls all things. Now, let me show you this with, with the plan of salvation. In Ephesians 1 verse 4, 
The Bible says in Ephesians 1 verse 4 that we were chosen in Christ for salvation before the world began. Before the world began. Yet, eons later, to today and beyond, God is still saving people. See, there's no hurry in God's timing. The building of Christ's church is a long-range process. The accomplishment of God's work in the world is a marathon. It's not a sprint. And I think there's a lesson here that we can learn from Esther and from the Lord as well. And here it is. There is urgency to what we do for God, but never impatience. There is urgency for what we do for God, but never impatience. And you say, well, I think you've just contradicted yourself. Well, let me explain this. There is an urgency to me serving God because I've only been given so long on this earth to do it. Remember last week, that Teddy Roosevelt quote, he said, the man in the arena, get in the arena. For such a time as this, it's your time. That's true because I'm only given so long to do it. I've got, I've got to go. There's an urgency to what I do. However, there's a patience in my service because I know that God's plan for what I do extends long beyond me. I want to get in the arena now and I want to serve God. But God's plan, he's never in a hurry. I don't have to slay all the dragons today. If we think that God has to do what he will do right now, then we may cut corners that we can't afford to be cut. We may sacrifice long-term results for short-term gains. We, we may get a lot of people to walk an aisle and, and profess faith in Christ so we can report it to our friends, but in the long run, we might see no enduring proofs of salvation in those people. And that's not, a, that's not a cost I'm willing to pay. You cannot hurry the work of God. God's work is always done in his time. The building of Christ's church is a long-range commitment to faithfulness. It's not a flash in the pan. It never has been. God's been at this for a long time, and guess what? He's still going to be tomorrow. Now you look at the end of verse eight and it kind of leaves us a little bit with a cliffhanger because verse nine switches scenes. Esther five, verse eight, tomorrow I'll do as the king has said. What it doesn't even tell us is if they, if they accepted the invitation to the second banquet. Verse nine flips the scene here. So Haman went out that day joyful and with a glad heart. So the rest of chapter 5 and all of chapter 6 happen between these two banquets. Banquet number 1 and banquet number 2. Plenty of time for everything to go wrong in Esther's plan, right? Plenty of time for everything to crumble. And you read through the rest of chapter 5 and it looks like that's exactly what's happening. Everything's going wrong. Haman leaves the banquet, verse 9, joyful and glad in heart. Man, he was pumped. He gets to be with the king. He gets to be with Esther, just him. How many other people got invited besides the king? No one, just me. He was thrilled. But his gladness lasted as long as he got to the, until he got to the king's gate and he saw Mordecai. How unregenerate, or how fickle the unregenerate heart is. He goes from glad to raging mad. End of verse nine. 
Haman went out that day joyful with a glad heart, but when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate and that he did not stand or tremble before him, he was filled with indignation against Mordecai. He walks out, he's thrilled, he's pumped, man, he's, he's second in command, and he sees Mordecai and everything changes. In my sanctified imagination, I, I see Mordecai standing there, right? And Haman comes walking out, you know, kind of skipping because he's so happy. Mordecai makes eye contact with him. And he says, I see you, but I ain't bowing. And Mordecai, Haman just goes off. Can't take it. How fickle the unregenerate heart is. He holds himself, Haman holds himself back at that moment. He gets home, verse 10. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. And he sent and called for his friends and his wife, Zeresh. Now in verses 11 and 12, Haman has this, this glory gala where he tells his wife and his friends about all his greatness. Look at this, verse 11. He says, he began to tell them of his great riches. Hey guys, you know how great I am. You know how, how wealthy I am. Remember he promised 10,000 talents of silver to the king if this decree would go forward. That's a lot of money. He's got some stashed away somewhere. He also tells them, it says, the multitude of his children. Now, chapter 9, verse 13 tells us that he has at least 10 sons. The Greek historian Herodotus tells us that in Persia, one of the greatest proofs of manly excellence was to be the father of many sons. So he was telling them, hey, I've got 10 sons. He maybe even had more than that. Verse 11, he also says, he tells them everything in which the king had promoted him and how he had advanced him above the officials and servants of the kings. He says, hey, guys, I'm, I'm, I'm top. I'm it. It's the king and then it's me. Verse 12, he says, besides all that, the queen loves me. Besides, Queen Esther invited no one but me to come in with the king to the banquet that she prepared. And tomorrow, I am again invited by her along with the king. The, the, the irony that is dripping from verse 12. The king loves me, or excuse me, the queen loves me. Little did he know. There's God being in control, isn't it? If he only knew what the queen was actually thinking, but he doesn't. He thinks he knows it all. He thinks he has it all, but he's actually in the dark. He has no idea that his decree has made him an enemy of the queen. He has no idea that God installing Esther as queen preempted him being promoted as prime minister. See, God is always a couple moves ahead. In this story, checkmate is still a couple moves away, but guess what? It's always coming. It's always coming. Verse 13, though, is intriguing. Haman's glory gala quickly becomes a pity party. Verse 13. Verse 11 and 12, he's, he's declared all this greatness that he has. Verse 13. Yet, all this avails me nothing. All of these wonderful things mean nothing to him. Why? He says, because Mordecai, I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. I want to park on this statement for just a second. Yet this avails me nothing. All these wonderful things that I have mean nothing to me. Guess what? He had one thing right. He did. You can have it all and yet have nothing. You can have it all and yet have nothing. Now, I realize he's not talking in a spiritual way here. But I want to draw a point out from this. 
Jesus made the point in Mark 8, 36. He said that you can gain the whole world. You can have everything. And in the end, you lose your own soul and you're left with nothing. You can have it all, but if you don't have Christ, you have nothing. All of this avails me nothing. There will be a lot of people in the judgment day will say those exact words. But, but I have all, but all it avails me nothing. When does all equal nothing? When Christ is not your all. All equals nothing when Christ is not your all. Now, Haman here was not thinking these spiritual thoughts. I realize that. He was thinking much more pragmatically. He had it all, but it wasn't enough because Mordecai wasn't bowing to him. See, he was so greedy that the one thing he didn't have messed up all the other things that he did have. Greed and lust for power are bottomless pits that can't be filled because a proud man never has enough pride. And I think we're like that sometimes, if we're honest. How are we sometimes like Haman? I think that's it. All the good things we have been blessed with to enjoy, but it's what we don't have that we worry about. Is that true? You know, even a, even a small coin, a very small coin can cover the sun when you hold it in the wrong spot. You can have everything there is to have and one little thing that you don't have or one little thing that you make your life out of will cover everything else if you hold it in the wrong spot. That was true for Haman. Verse 14. I, I see a question here between verse 13 and 14 and that is Haman, you know, he's laid this all out and he kind of asks his friends and, and his wife, Zeresh, hey, a dear wife, what, what do you think I should do? And I've told you everything that's going on. What do you think I should do? And Zeresh, being the sweet little lady that she is, she says, hang him like a dog. She's not the nicest person in the world, I don't think. You look at her response in verse 14. She says, let a gallows be made. 50 cubits high, that'd be 75 feet. And in the morning, suggest to the king that Mordecai be hanged on it. Then go merrily with the king to the banquet. What a treasure she is. I'd like to wake up next to her every morning. Hang him like a dog. She wanted it to be a public execution. She, she knew what Haman wanted. She knew what, what pleased Haman. 75 feet high, that'd be, that'd be high enough for everybody in town to see. Mordecai is up there. He's the first one. He's the first one of the Jews to get him, to get it. And Haman's the first one to do it. See, Haman's taking the lead. In the morning, then, just go and ask for permission. Just say, hey, king, can I hang Mordecai? Sure, no problem. And then, then you know, waltz off to the banquet and have a good time. At the end of verse 14, it says, and the thing pleased Haman, so he had the gallows made. Little did he know whose gallows he was building. God's always in control. What a plan. What a plan. There's a theme that develops here at the end of verse five, or excuse me, chapter five. The theme is tomorrow. Tomorrow. We get to the end of, verse, uh, of chapter five and, and, and everything is set up for tomorrow. You notice what Esther said, the last word she said, verse eight? Come to the banquet that I will prepare for them and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. Verse 14, Zeresh says, hey, build the, build the gallows. 
And in the morning, tomorrow morning, hang Mordecai. You got this whole story that's coming down to, to this point in time, tomorrow. It, the whole story of Esther will come to a head tomorrow. Esther has her plan for tomorrow's banquet. Haman has his plan for the death of Mordecai in the morning. Tomorrow's that day, isn't it? That, that mystery. We, we think we know a lot about it, but if we're honest, we, we know very little about tomorrow. We know the sun will come up because God's faithful. We think we know what we're going to do. We think, you know, there's work tomorrow, there's this tomorrow, there's that tomorrow, it's going to be freezing cold tomorrow. We think we know what it's going to be, but, but there's still that mystery. We really know very little about it. In 1862, Victor Hugo published what, what I think is one of the greatest literary works of all time, Les Miserables, a story of law, grace, and redemption. And towards the end of the story, there's this climactic moment where the storylines, the plots, the characters, they all come together, and it converges on one moment of time. Each character, each plot, is looking ahead to tomorrow, the events of tomorrow. Some of the characters are looking at the events of tomorrow with hope. Some are looking at them with fear. Some are looking at them with dread. If you know the story, the, the revolutionaries there in, in France are, are looking at tomorrow as the day they will make their stand at the barricade and they will bring back the power to the people of France. Meanwhile, Javert, the, the antagonist of the story, he's the, the legalistic police inspector. He's hoping that tomorrow they will quash the rebellion and that he will be able to restore law and order. Eponine is, is dreading tomorrow because it's one more day that, that Marius won't pay attention to her. Meanwhile, Marius and Cosette are, are hoping that tomorrow he survives the battle at the barricade and so that they can have many more tomorrows together. And then Jean Valjean, the, the, the protagonist of the story, he's, he's fearful about what has happened in the past, but he's hopeful for a better tomorrow. It all comes to this point in the story. All these plots converge on the night before tomorrow. And in the musical versions of the story, you may have heard some of the music from this, the, the characters sing a song entitled, One Day More. Listen to the last lines of this song. It says this, the very last lines. It says, tomorrow we'll discover what our God in heaven has in store. One more dawn, one more day, one day more. That's the story of Esther right there. It's all come to, you're at the beginning of chapter six, and it's all come to this point, that there is one more day ahead that's going to determine how this story plays out. Esther and Haman have both made their plans for tomorrow, yet in the end, they don't control it, do they? It seems like Haman's plan is actually a step ahead because he's going to go to Esther's banquet after he does what? Kills Mordecai. So it seems like Haman's a step ahead right now. Is there enough time to save Mordecai or is he basically a goner? Well, maybe Esther can't save Mordecai, but she can still save the rest of the Jews. All of these unknown events of tomorrow are, are in Mordecai's life, all hanging in the balance. You know, we may think we know what will happen tomorrow. Esther thought she did. She said, I'm going to have a banquet tomorrow. Well, would she? Haman says, I'm going to kill Mordecai tomorrow. But, but would he? 
regardless of what we think or what we plan, tomorrow always remains a mystery, doesn't it? So what do we do about tomorrow? What do we do about tomorrow? The same thing we did about today. We trust. We walk by faith because we know that God is sovereign and that he will be there ready and waiting to lead us. There's an old song that says this, and I close with the lyrics. I don't know about tomorrow. I just live from day to day. I don't borrow from the sunshine for its skies may turn to gray. I don't worry o'er the future for I know what Jesus said. And today I'll walk beside him for he knows what lies ahead. I don't know about tomorrow. It may bring me poverty. But the one who feeds the sparrow is the one who stands by me. And the path that be my portion may be through the flame or flood, but his presence goes before me and I'm covered with his blood. Many things about tomorrow I don't seem to understand, but I know who holds tomorrow and I know who holds my hand. Let's pray.